There is an unseen hand to me that leads Welcome to the Unseen Hand Podcast, featuring the pulpit ministry of missionary evangelist Ronnie Brown. Listen in as Brother Ronnie shares the truth of the Bible and how God's unseen hand can lead and guide your life with each and every verse. This hand still leads me as I go. God's word. I don't think I thought it clearly through when I decided to go through the book of Jude on Sunday mornings in these a few weeks that we have remaining, and so I had uh, I'd forgotten that it was Mother's Day on this day when we'll be talking about apostate. So the title of my message was "Is Jude?" Uh, this is the illustration of Jude. Uh, he gives us some illustrations, and so I'll change my title to make it more of a Mother's Day uh, Mother's Day gift. Every mother, this is how you can know your child is an apostate. How's that? We can do it that way and make it a Mother's Day message. All right. Jude, the little book of Jude, right before the book of Revelation, at the end of your Bible, Jude chapter number 1. And we're going to pick up reading, uh, let's see, our focus will be on verse number 12. Let's pick up reading in verse number 4. That'll give us a little bit more of the context. Some of you haven't been here earlier in the previous weeks, but... Uh, Uh, Let's start at verse number four. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them to believe not. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, hath res- he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness into the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities about uh, them in the like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also, these filthy dreamers, defile uh, the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. But these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they, uh, what, but what they know naturally as brute beasts, in those things they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them, for they have gone the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. That brings us up here. If you're new to this passage, I know you probably have a lot of questions about what I've just read. Let's just boil it down to this. Jude is concerned that there are infiltrators coming into the church that are not of God, they don't know God, they're not saved, and they are meddling in church affairs, spreading a disease to contaminate the true church of the church of the living God. That's where we'll pick up our reading in verse number 12. This is what we'll cover today. These are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. 
clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, and twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming in their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And Enoch also. The seventh from Adam prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These are murmurs, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons and admiration because of advantage. You can be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. I want to talk to you this morning about the illustration of Jude. We saw his designation. We saw his observation. Now his illustration. For all you mothers, here's how to know whether your child is an apostate. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. Thank you for our Lord Jesus. Give us hearts and ears that are ready to hear. Father, I pray that this morning we would search our hearts. God, that we would not go through the perfunctory uh, uh, emotions, the perfunctory procedure of going through the motions of, of trying to give attentive worship. But only Spirit of God, capture the heart. Speak to us individually. Make us look at our own lives and compare them with your Scripture. Show us our need of a Savior. Guard us against the plague of false teaching. Yes, it's in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. The Bible is clear. In the last day, there will be a great turning away from the faith, otherwise known as an apostasy. Jesus said it in Matthew 24, 10 through 12. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Speaking of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. That phrase indicates an apostasy. And that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. He warned Timothy, the young preacher, in 1 Timothy 4, 1-3, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisies, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe not. Again, he is talking about warning Timothy, there is going to be a falling away. People are going to say no to the Christian faith. He continued in to, in to describe this time of apostasy in 2 Timothy 4, 3-4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but will after their own lust heap to themselves teachers having itching ears and they shall turn away from the uh, turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables 
The Apostle Peter addresses this same issue. He warns in 2 Peter 2, 1-3, but there are, were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false prophets among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of, and through covetousness shall Shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not and their damnation slumbereth not. In the book of Revelation as well, the apostle John tells us that in the last days, in that tribulation period, there will be a great turning away from the gospel. A great turning unto that false prophet which will point them to the Antichrist, the beast, the ruler of the entire world. Why do I tell you all this? The words of Jesus, the words of Paul, the words of Peter, the words of John the Beloved. I tell you this so that you will realize that Jude is not some conspiracy theorist out there. He's not a crackpot. He's not some paranoid frantic going about screaming that the end of the world is coming for the church. He's not some sidewalk stander with a big board that says the end is coming. No, he follows in exactly with the other apostles and the words of Jesus Christ Himself to point to a day of apostasy. And that day shall come with the apostasy being birthed like an infection within the church. It will spread like a disease until the true gospel is eliminated. It is removed from any vestige of remembrance. You see... No, His voice joins in harmony with the apostles and Jesus Himself. When one looks through history, there are times of apostasy that can be found. Times of false teaching that can be found. So when Jude preaches this message, and when he does in the early days of the church, it could well be said of the dark ages. When the Catholic Church predominated the world with a false teaching, a false works teaching that they still do to this day. It could have been preached in, in other times where the, uh, the, the doctrine of the church has wavered on the axle, but always in a gleaming penetration of truth. The gospel, the true gospel has broken forth such as the Reformation and Martin Luther's bringing back uh, the sola scriptura, sola fide, sola Bible, sola faith, sola grace. He brings that back in and the church is survived. It remains. Although Jesus, Peter's, John's and Jude's teaching on apostasy are beneficial in any time of church history, they point to a particular period in prophetic events. The earnest Bible reader could have read these verses if you were in the 1800s and you, let's say, 1833 and you get your Bible out and you read you, it'd read the same as it did today if you're reading the right Bible. It'd read the same way it does today. And, and it would mean the same thing. Its meaning hasn't changed. And that person could look around them and they could pick out the apostasy, the pockets of apostasy that are rising up in society, in culture, and in the religious world. 
They could see apostasy unfolding. But I believe that more and more on a worldwide stage, we are seeing the ultimate apostasy unfold in these latter days. And Jude here is describing, he is characterizing uh, uh, this, genu- uh, this to these genuine believers so they can recognize it. Why did he write this letter? He wanted it read in the churches so the church could see who apostates were, what their plan was, what they acted like, what they did. He's giving the devil's playbook to the church at large. That's why. It is so important for us to know this book, to know what it says, to read it and apply it and look at it as spectacles and through as we look through the spectacles of this book to the world around us. In these verses before us, which many scholars deduce is the most scathing of the entire letter. These verses we read today. Or that man, I'm telling you what, he he just he just takes names, man. He he does name calling in this. He he gets right down and as is and and unveils the blackest and darkest and wicked aspects of this apostate religion. He's giving it to us. These false teachers. He's giving it to us, an example of them, through illustration. I believe the predominance of this text, this 12 through 16 here, is an illustration of what these apostates are like. What do they look like? What do they do? How do they act? He's giving us that. He gave us the determinations earlier. He said, you know, uh, these, these people, these apostates are a lot like these people in Bible history. They're a lot like a... Uh, they're a lot like a uh, They're a lot like Cain. They're a lot like Balaam. They're a lot like Korah. They're a lot like the children of Israel. They're a lot like Sodom and Gomorrah. But now he gives us pictures, illustrations of what they are like. So I want you to recognize these illustrations. Number one, I want you to see in this text their conniving characters. Their conniving characteristics. In these two verses, verse 12 and 13, lay the bulk of Jude's illustration. Did you notice that? He said in verse number 12, these are like spots. These are spots in your feasts of charity. These are like clouds without water. These are like uh, trees without fruit. These are like waves of the sea. Uh, They're like wandering stars. He gives illustrations from nature to show what these men are like. And so I want us to look at these, these. I found these fascinating. As I've never really understood what they were saying, what did he mean by these? It is fascinating what he is showing us of these false teachers. Number one, he shows us a deceptive guest. In verse number 12, he says that these are spots in your, your feasts of charity. When he speaks of feasts of charity, he is referring to uh, the love feast that the church would have every Lord's Day. Both rich and poor, slave and free came together, those that believe in Jesus Christ, and would bring a basically potluck dinner. The rich would bring more because they were able to. They would bring more to eat. Uh, I know you're hungry. Well, I'll get past this real quick. They would, bring, they would bring more to eat. Those that were poor would bring little. But everyone would bring something. And the picture this, the entire church all sitting together, rich and poor and bond and free, all sitting together, fellowshipping as a family. 
Maybe even taking the Lord's Supper as this as is referred to oftentimes by Paul when he was talking about these love feasts, he put it in the context of the Lord's Supper. So maybe they had a dinner and then they then they took the Lord's Supper together. It was a time of unity, it was a time of love to be shared, where all the things that separated them seemed to vanish away, and nothing was there but the children of God. But these love feasts were being infiltrated by these false teachers. You see, he was indicating, Jude was saying, that these false teachers would come in under the disguise of unity with everybody else. Matter of fact, the wording suggests that they would revel in the love feast. That they would have a good time. They would be the life of the party at these love feasts. But notice what it says. It says that they... Verse number 12, these are spots in your love feast of charity when they feast or revel with you, feeding themselves without fear. Notice this. They look like everybody else. They tried to be the life of the party. They wore a mask seeming to be unified with everybody else. But when they came in, they came in for one reason only, to fill their own belly. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that in our day and time that you would go down there and you would get all the hash brown casserole that you know the pastor just loves and take all that to yourself to fill your own belly. That's not exactly what's going on here. They would, you remember Paul in, the, in 1 Corinthians talked about these love feasts and talked about how cliquish they got. The rich clicked together and they kept their food separate from everybody else and didn't share it with the poor. The poor went hungry. They even got drunk at these love feasts. It was ungodly what was happen on, happening in Corinth. They got clicking. Jude is referring to the same thing. But when he says, notice in verse number 12, when he says, feeding themselves, that word feeding is the same word from which we get our word pastor, shepherd. Here, they are leading people astray in their own clique without any shame, any fear. See, they don't just come down the aisle in the church and purvey their false doctrine, confront the preacher with it. No, they get a, they get a group of fairly like-minded people together and they spew their false doctrine. They spew their permissive life. They spew their sinful proclivities upon that little clique just so they can raise themselves up and they have no fear of God. No fear of God to lead those around them to stray. And notice, remember what it said? I skipped this on purpose. It said these are spots in your uh, feast of charity. That word spots, some authors debate this. It could be referring to something that's dirty, something that's filthy. A spot on something. And it would, it would kind of make sense that, uh, that this beautiful love feast is stained by these false teachers that come on, come in with an ulterior motive. But the word actually means a submerged or half-submerged rock on which a ship could easily shipwreck. You get along the craggy coast of, of, a, of a body of land and there may be coral reefs underneath, uh, underneath the water just out of sight. And the boat coming along wouldn't see the reef and it would crush the hull of the ship and sink it and they'd never even see it coming. Or slightly submerged out of the water. You could barely tell it was there, but the boat would crash on it. 
Here, here's what Jude is saying. Listen, there are false teachers. People who are giving permission of a wicked lifestyle sitting among you at the table, looking like you, fellowshipping like you, having a facade of unity, but they're telling others to live a lifestyle that will put their ship in under the waters, that will crash their lives, that will send them to the judgment of God. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about people's conversation at the, at the, at the church dinners. Well, you know, Brother Ronnie can get a little worked up from time to time. He can a little, he, <laughs> he overspeaks a little bit. God bless his heart. He's so full of zeal and has so little knowledge of the truth. Be honest with you. Uh, you know, sex outside of marriage ain't that big of a deal. I mean, good night. This is the 21st century. Uh, people fornicate all the time. People, people make love. I mean, come on, brother. Brother Ronnie, let live and let live. Am I, am I right? This poke people around the table. You know, you got a point. And what he is doing is guiding them to a rocky ledge where he can put them on the shore of devastation. That is exactly what Jude is depicting here. Notice not only do we see a, and I won't go redo this, first and second of all, he gives a disappointing cloud. Verse number 12, he said, When they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, they're only concerned about their own belly, building themselves up, they care nothing for God. Then they said, They are clouds without water. Wonder what is he talking about there? Uh, Jude would well know that in that day and time uh, there was no forecasting system. You couldn't tell that next week we're going to have rain and, the, and everything's coming together as though they'll bring rain next week. These people would go through great drought periods in which they would call upon God. They need rain. They need God to send rain. And, and as they come up from their prayers, they look to the sky and maybe tomorrow this dark cloud appears and everybody goes, Yes! Rain! Rain has come! And as it approaches, the wind carries it away to someone. It's disappointing. It gives a false promise of a met need and never fulfills. It's an empty promise. It's an empty, it's a vanishing hope. These hucksters come in with all kinds of promises. They come in with charisma. They come in with a big light show and a big band. They talk about God owes you money. God promises you can speak it in the truth and it'll become so. You need to affirm what you want with your speech. You need to profess it over that. Listen, if you do that, gold dust will come from the clouds. We'll see angel feathers in this place. Everything in the world will be hunky-dory. If you give 1995 your promise every month, I tell you, God's going to give you a Cadillac by the millions. Poverty stricken in, 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 in South America, in, in the urban areas of our country, in Africa. They fall for it hook, line, and sinker. It's a prosperity gospel. It is a cloud that promises so much. Vanishes. Making the adherence a twice-fold hardened God-hater. A God-doubter. Well, I believe that preacher. He said that if God was going to meet my need and give me what I want, give me a new car, give me a new job, give me a fat bank account. He took all the money and skipped town. twice hard. Jude is cautioning those, against those clouds. Then a dead tree. 
a dead tree. He said, uh, the, the, uh, who's, who's, uh, we call, uh, where are they at? Clouds they are, are, uh, are without water, carried about with winds. Notice this. Trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. What is he talking about here? A dead tree. The picture is much like that of the Lord Jesus in Mark chapter number 11. When he came into Jerusalem in those last weeks, he looked at this fig tree. He saw it for great off. It had beautiful leaves. It had great foliage. It looked like it had fruit. He imagined, you could look at that tree and imagine right underneath those leaves is a luscious fruit. What did Jesus do? He come up, He lifted up the leaves, there's no fruit. What did Jesus do? He cursed the tree to die. Peter come out, I think the next week, he come out and saw the tree withered up and dead. This Jude is giving the same illustration. These false teachers have all the outward manifestation to make you think, man, they know what they're talking about. Look at that suit he's got on. Look at that car that he drives. This many people, here it is, this many people can't be wrong. This many people can't be duped. And yet when you lift the leaves, and how many times? How many times through the circumstances of the run-of-mill life does God lift the leaves? He did on Jimmy Swaggart. He did on Praise the Lord Television and Tammy and, and what's his Faye ba- Tammy Faye Baker and, and what is the other, baker's, other Baker character's name? He knows how to do it. Lift the leaves and there is no fruit of godliness in them. You want to tell an apostate? Lift the leaves on their work life. Lift, lift the leaves on their home life. They have no fruit. They're twice dead. But Jude says they're twice dead. They're dead as a son of Adam and they are dead as an apostate in the rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're twice dead. Plucked up by the roots indicates a day of judgment that is coming to them. Notice also they're a dangerous sea. Look in verse number Number 13, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame. These teachers are like a raging sea on which a boat may seem helpless. These teachers seem like they're taken over. These people are like raging sea. Have you ever been on the boat? When we got married, Carrie and I went on our honeymoon on a cruise and we hit some choppy waters. There was a hurricane uh, that, that went into Mexico and we were seeing some of their waves. And I'm telling you what, that ocean felt like it was having its way with us, lifting up and down and up and down. And I've been on my dad's bass boat and they've been a few times we've been in a wake and I've been wondering, oh, well, well, this ain't going to take us over or not. It seems like the waves are in control. They're a force that can't be reckoned with. There's something that cannot be stopped. Have you ever heard people talk about, hey, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history, do you? As though history's already been written and you're on the wrong side. Whether it's the homosexual issue, whether it's the abortion issue, whether it's on gay rights or whatever the situation is, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. They make it seem like they are in complete control. Waves of the ocean. You can't stop us. You can't stop what's happening. There is nothing that can stop it. They spew out their heresies and lay them bare like debris. Notice he said... 
They are a raging seas, foaming out their shame. The idea there is the foam of the sea, the waves, like a hurricane. They come upon the beach and then they drag off. They leave behind their foam and the debris, the filth from the ocean, that's grown, the seaweed, the all the disgusting things from the sea, all the shipwrecked vessels are cloud the shoreline. He's saying that's exactly what they are. They think they're in control. God's going to be a battleship. We're going to see where Enoch uh, tells us for sure. God's going to be a battleship that will cut through their waters and bring a day of judgment. But for right now, it seems like they're in control. Dumping out before the eyes of all. All the wickedness. All the filth. All the, the sensuality. Just gushing it out. Puking it out on society. Along with it, all the dashed lives. All the sin. All the crushed lives. Jude says they're like a they're like a a deadly a deadly wave, and then also a disoriented star. This was the most fascinating. Look at what he says in verse number thirteen. He said, "Raging waves of the sea, foaming out their shame." Notice this: wandering stars. I had no idea. What's he talking about? In astrology. Not astrology, in astronomy, not astrology. Astronomy at the time, the study of the stars. In that day and time, when the astronomer looked at the sky, it seemed as though the world revolved, or the sun revolved around us, right? That was the, that was the scientific thinking at the time. Now they could look out at the stars though, and they could see that the stars followed a, a prodigious path in the sky. The stars were always consistent. They always were in the right place as they looked up. And that's the Milky Way galaxy. That's what they're seeing. The Milky Way galaxy and our earth rotating around the center of this galaxy, our, our solar system rotating around the center of this galaxy. And everything follows an exacting course. The star is always in the right location. It never veers off its course. But then there's these oddballs. These strange heavenly things. They'll see them in the sky. They shine brightly like a star. But they don't follow the right path like everybody else. They go pew. It's like they take their own path. It's like they make their own way. They're never consistent. They're here today and gone tomorrow. They're a wandering star. Do you know that wandering star? Do you know what word that gives us in English? Planets. A wandering star is a planet. It doesn't follow the path visually from this earth that all the other stars do. It kind of cuts across the ground. It does its own thing. They couldn't, they couldn't understand what are these other stars doing. They come across the sky. They don't follow all the other stars in their same pattern. They cut across this way. They do their own thing. They're not predictable. It's a planet. It may look like a star, you know, Carrie, we're, we're, we're looking at the midnight, uh, at the sky, and every time Carrie sees a really bright star, she'll say, oh, uh, look at that star, and she'll say, oh, it's probably a planet. You know, they always shine a little brighter, don't they? They always seem like they're brighter. And it is, but they don't follow a path just like all the other stars. They are, they are, they cut their own path. He said, that's what these teachers are like. They're wandering stars. They do what they want to. 
They, 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 they cut out the Bible. They cut this out and cut this out. They treat the Bible like a Piccadilly and they want this and want that and reject this and reject that. Uh, they, they put it in theological strongholds and twist it up in, in rambling double-speak talk and try to make it say what will make them feel good about themselves, what will please themselves and gain them followers. They're wandering stars. They spew out their heresies and lay them, uh, they're, they're disoriented stars, wandering stars. They, uh, they, they're erratic. They don't follow the path of life. They have no regard for God, uh, for God, the God of heaven, that revealed path in His Word. They take their own wandering path and in doing so, they attempt to take others with them. Finally, a destined place. He said in verse number 13, To whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever? Staying with that planet, if you follow that planet, it goes off of the horizon and into darkness in a regular path. It disappears in its orbit from the vantage point of the astronomer. The Holy Spirit here is speaking through Jude and saying those that cut their own path, those clouds without water, those, uh, those usurpers at the table, those trees without fruit, those raging seas will end up inevitably, in the blackness of darkness. He's talking about the judgment of God. He's talking about the clear, sovereign judgment of God upon sin. Those that choose sin over a Savior are going to end up into a hell of blackness and darkness and burning fire forever if they choose their own path and not the path of the Lord and not what God has laid out in His Gospel. Their conniving character. Secondly, their coming condemnation, verse 14 and 15, it seems to indicate that the Holy Spirit guided the mind of Jude who's still fixed on the judgment to come. In verse 13, remember he said they're going to go into a place of darkness and blackness. That puts him in mind of the judgment to come. He tells of the coming judgment for those who have subtly disguised their intentions to undermine the church as they have done their best to blend in like a chameleon. With the people of God. I want to remind you, these people are not like the atheists of today. Your Sam Harris's, your, your people that are outright atheists, that, that hate God, that publicly write books to disparage God. Listen, that's not who these people are. At least they got the common decency to say, I'm not a part of any religion. I'm not part of your religion. I hate your God. I hate everything about it. At least they're up and up to say that. These people come in under a disguise and say, well, I like your God, but I got some ideas about Him. They're a little different than what you're used to. They come in with a disguise. They don't want anybody to know. They're, they're not forthright in that. Now whether they're a rank atheist, an absolute out and out atheist, or whether they are disguised, they're going to meet the same judgment of God. That's what Jude is getting to here. There is a clear judgment against these false teachers that they will not escape the wrath to come. Notice, first of all, we see a sovereign arrival. Verse 14, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of His saints. Jude's illustration here is subtle. But he takes us back all the way to the, to the days before the flood. Enoch lived in a day of pervasive wickedness and permissiveness. 
He lived in a time where man as a whole seemed to reject God. There were bright spots here and there such as Noah and Enoch and Methuselah. But outside of them, there was no worshipers of God. Everywhere you turn, sin was like a raging sea attempting to drown out the acknowledgement and the worship of God as the Creator. Do you remember who Enoch's son was? It was the Methuselah. You ever get the question, who's the oldest man in the Bible? Methuselah. Methuselah lived some 900 and something years. The oldest, longest living human being ever recorded on the face of this earth. Methuselah's name actually means when he dies, it shall come. How would you like that kind of baby name? Yeah. Oh, bless your heart. When he dies, it shall come. You know, Bless your little heart. But no, it's because Enoch, his father, was assured by divine revelation that the length of the life of his son was the end of God's patience with a wicked, wicked world and would send the judgment of God. He knew the judgment of God was coming to going to fall upon this earth. Jude captures that, that, that revelation to Enoch and brings it to before us in quoting Enoch's prophetic vision of the bodily visible return of the Lord. Sidebar. There is much teaching on these things about Enoch. You'll find them creep up here and there. Enoch. There was a book uh, an apocryphal book supposed to have been the preaching of the prophecy of Enoch. And some believe that this was a quotation of that apocryphal book and that it should be added to the Bible because Jude quoted from it. That is nonsense. If it's not Scripture, if it's not accepted by Jewish people in the Old Testament as Scripture, it's to be rejected. You know, all these apocryphal books came after the end in Malachi when God stopped speaking at the end of Malachi. Then all these little apocryphal books came up. People wanted to hear from God. People started, you know, the same thing happened in the New Testament. When, when Revelation was written, John put down his pen, that was the end of God's revelation. Everybody else said, oh, we want some more. We want some more. So started people writing all these apocryphal letters, these, these lost epistles of Jude or, or Thomas and all this apocryphal. Never accepted by the church. I just want to make that clear. I'm not glossing over this issue. It is clear that I believe that God gave Jude divine revelation to know what Enoch preached, period. Alright, we'll move on. Sorry, I had to make sure I, I'm not skipping nothing here. Uh, but, but here, Enoch gives us a picture of the coming of Jesus Christ. You know, what, what Enoch says here goes right along with what John the Revelator pictured in Revelation 19. Do you remember when we're going through Revelation 19? When Jesus splits the eastern sky, He comes through the clouds on a white horse, crowned with many crowns, with a name King of Kings and Lord of Lords on His thigh, with a powerful sword of the, the word of His mouth. He will smite the nations. It, John said that all of the hosts of heaven came with Him. That's exactly exactly what Jude saw. I mean Enoch saw. He saw the Lord come with ten thousands of His saints. Let me remind you, church of the living God, Jesus is coming. Long after my voice dies in echo from this church, never forget, Jesus is coming. There is a day of reckoning for this world. There is a day of reckoning for the ungodly. There is a day of judgment coming upon those that reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming. He's coming again. 
Here we see not only a sovereign arrival, but a sure agreement. Verse number 15. To execute judgment upon all and to convince all that, uh, that are ungodly among them all. We'll stop right there. You know how in the full counsel of God's Word, how those judgments work out. For the child of God, saved, know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, there is the great white, there is the judgment seat of Christ where we'll not be judged on our sins. God did that on the cross when He, when he slay His only begotten Son for our sins on the cross. We'll be judged as servants, given according crowns and positions in God's kingdom. Outside of that, there is a judgment of the nations in the day of the Lord when Jesus comes to smite the Antichrist and to kill all the armies of Armageddon. God will set up His a great kingdom upon this earth. He will judge the nations. But there's one final judgment, that great white throne judgment. That's where every soul that is suffered in the pits of hell will be joined with every molecule that ever existed of their mortal body bring together and stand before Almighty God in that day in that day their, their mouths will be stopped there will be no more arguments you can argue with an atheist, an agnostic. They'll go on and on and on and on and on. They will not stop talking. They will not shut up. They refuse what you want. But in that day of judgment, every mouth will be stopped. Every, every eye will be lowered. Every head will be bowed. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He said He will convince them of their ungodly deeds and their ungodly speech and everything they will bow their head when the books come out. And they will say, yes, Lord. I said that. I did that. Contrary to your word. It's a picture of the coming sure agreement of every sinner. You know, they say that there is a, part, a certain part of your brain that records every moment of your life. Every waking moment. Every time you've looked, turned, said, spoke. And that all that needs is just a little bit of, of, of maneuvering with a, with a probe. And you can remember everything that took place in your life. You ever, hear, you ever heard people say, my life passed before my eyes. In a moment of great anxiety, a moment of great fear, it seems as though you can relive every moment you've ever lived on this life. It's there. Whatever you've done, however you've sinned against God, however you've blasphemed and rebelled against Him, it's there. When those books are opened, you will have no other recourse but agree. I can't deny it. It's right here. And it's in that book. There's no denying. There's no arguing before the throne of God. There's no place for rebuttal and rebuke and cross-examination. It is an open shut case against every sinner. There's going to be a sure acknowledgement of sin. And from there the judgment. My message to you today is that of to hear the warning of Jude and to flee the wrath to come. God, at the point of the day in which you'll judge the world in righteousness by that man whom He hath ordained, where I have given assurance unto all men and that He raised Him from the dead. Turn and repent. Don't go into the day of judgment. Forsake your way and turn to Jesus Christ. The cunning characteristics of these people, the, uh, the, the coming condemnation, last of all, their corrupt conduct. Look at verse 16. 
These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts. And their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. Jude doesn't hold back in the least when it comes to the characteristics of these apostates. John Phillips said this, and I love this quote. He said the word these. Did you notice that in verse 16? That word these. John Phillips said, it's one of Jude's favorite uh, exclamations. These filthy dreamers in verse 8. These speak of those things which, which they know not. Verse 10. These spots in verse 12. Enoch prophesied of these in verse 14. And now these are murmurers. He will not let us take our eyes off the apostates for a moment. They like to disguise themselves and to hide behind an outward show of orthodoxy. But they, uh, they like to be called moderates instead of liberals. They regard themselves as progressives instead of apostates. Jude keeps on hunting them down, pulling off their mask, exposing them for what they are. These, 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 end quote. He continues to expose them for who they are. Number one, what does he say? There is an unaccomplished satisfaction. Did you hear what he said in verse 16? They are murmurers, complainers. It's close to home, doesn't it? These people that are apostates are murmurers and complainers. I believe Jude is digging down to the core of the very heart of the people that he's talking to. Set aside all their disputations with the Bible and theology. At the heart, they first of all are discontented. They will not rest in the contentment that is available in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, they are condemned to constant discontentment for all eternity. The early church theologian Augustine of Hippo rightly said, Thou hast made us for Thyself, O Lord. And our heart is restless until it finds rest in Thee. So these apostates are condemned to a continual dissatisfaction. This is where murmuring comes from. Murmuring is kind of a a word made from a sound. Everybody's saying something under their breath. This is where complaining comes from. They just don't want what God gave them. They want something else. This is at the core of every sinful movement from the transgender to the homosexual movement to many of the church splits and the rebellion in the home. I'm not satisfied with what God gave me. I'm not satisfied with what God made me as a gender, what He made me as a person. I want, my flesh wants Something else. I'm not satisfied with God's Word. I want something different. That's at the heart of the apostate. They refuse to be satisfied in God. Unaccomplished unaccomplished satisfaction. Ungodly search. Look at verse number 16. He said, and they're uh, uh, walking, uh, said, sin, uh, these are murmurs and complainers walking after their own lusts. Here, it's an ungodly search. This dissatisfaction with what God made them and how God created them and what God said in His Word. 
drives them down every path of lustful desire. At the root of every path of lustful desire. At the root of the rejection of Christian orthodoxy. The plain teaching of God's word is an unwillingness to have any part to have any part of innate human fleshly a desire to be curtailed. That's what they want. That's why they say no to the Bible. Because I don't want to be told what I cannot do. They hate the phrase, Thou shalt not. They don't want any borders. They don't want anyone telling them what to do. They want abject freedom to follow whatever lustful urge, whatever fleshly desire they can have. One author writes this, Apostates are not ordinary backsliders. A backslider might yield to lust, but can never be happy living in lust. An apostate is an, uh, is an ordinary, unregenerate man. Uh, uh, ordinary, the, uh, it's not an ordinary, unregenerate man. The ordinary, unsaved sinner might indulge in his lusts, but there's always the hope and possibility that they will be saved. An apostate, however, repudiates all that he has once known about salvation. He has tasted it and has deliberately rejected it so that all he now has is his lust. Listen to me. This is the most frightening place as a pastor that I can be. The church, being raised in a church, is one of the greatest blessings in a Christian life to know the gospel, to know Jesus Christ. But it is one of the dangers. Because someone could come and taste and by whatever reason, the desire for lust, taste, adamantly reject the gospel of Jesus Christ to close the door. There's no hope anymore. Don't even talk to them. Don't even talk to me about that religion stuff. I grew up in church. I know how the game is played. I know the prosperity thing. I know why they do what they do. And they forever shut the door on Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, God is willing to save all those that repent and believe. God is not willing that any should perish. But there are some slam the door and will never let God walk through it again. That is an apostate. Then they'll close the door and then they'll try to make every kind of excuse, every kind of way. They can, they can, they'll headlock Scripture. They'll, uh, they'll, they'll put the arm of doctrine behind its back. Uh, they'll leap over everything they can to get what they want. To, va- to validate themselves. To validate what they want. What they feel. And they have closed the door on any satisfaction. That's an apostate. Are you an apostate? Have you, have you closed the door? Have you said no? Listen, I, I don't know if you're going to run down the aisle tonight or run down the aisle this morning and get saved. I, I, don't, I don't know anything. I know this. If there is something in your heart that says, I'm not ready to close the door yet, there's hope for you. There's hope for you. All my college years, I would try, I'd try to force that door closed. I would. I want to drink, I want to cuss, I want to fornicate, I want to do whatever I want to do, live how I want to live. But for some reason, 
some reason, I can't remember everything they said, but the sweaty guy behind the pulpit with tears in his eyes kept coming back into my mind. Maybe that's true. Maybe someday I'll embrace it. Maybe not right now. I'm telling you, there's hope in you for you today. But you do not know what occasion in life would come across where you close that door. Today, if you hear His voice, harden not your heart as in the day of provocation. Today is the day of salvation. Don't say no to God today. Come and know Him in saving faith. Don't close the door on God forever. Because that is exactly who Jude is talking about. Someone who has closed the, God, closed the door on God forever. Last of all, he comes and, and he speaks of ungodly speech, under, underlying speech. He said in verse number, I remember 16, uh, he speaks of the great swelling words, having men's persons in adm, admiration because of the advantage. With all his words, with all, the, with all the enlightenment and progressive speech, all he's doing is looking for someone to affirm them. Looking for some kind of advantage. They talk a big talk and they show off an air of confidence in their apostasy, but their words are only words that they hope will impress others in order to gain an advantage. William Barclay wrote this, They speak with pride and arrogance, yet at the same time they are ready to pander to the great if they think that they can get anything out of it. They, they spew their rhetoric about a false religion, about gay, free love and about human rights. If they can get the slightest bit of advantage, they'll, they'll bend their convictions. They'll get what they want, however they want to get it, hook or crook. Their, their life is a facade, a religious mask to hide their true desires of pleasant, a pleasure in power. They will say anything to get a hearing. You ever hear the old phrase, the squeaky wheel gets the grease? The news media cameras clamor to hear the foaming mouths of the outrage of the sexually perverted. And they know that. They know the cameras turn upon them when their blood vessels burst from their face and they have their signs and they have their gay flags and they, they do all their marching. They know the cameras are on them. They want that attention. And it is all a symptom of the corrupt conduct in refusing God. I'm closing. I'm almost done. Who are you this morning? Who are you? Who are you? Jude has painted the picture of an apostate. And for some reason, there are certain curvatures of it. There are certain things. Even as I read this text, I looked at my heart new and afresh. I don't care if I've been a pastor for nearly 10 years. I don't care if I've been preaching for nearly 15. I sat there and before that text and searched my own heart because there were places in this picture where I saw a little bit of me. Where I want to bend the rules so that I can do what I want to do. I'm telling you, every one of us need to take a hard look at this text. and Make sure we know Jesus Christ. God said in Isaiah 118, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. While God's dealing with your heart this morning, why don't you come talk to Him? Don't close that door. Don't say no to God. I promise you, I 
I promise you there is satisfaction in Jesus. I promise you there is far more rest in Jesus than a wandering star going across everything trying to find and trying to feel a life that you know that you're made for but you cannot find outside of Jesus Christ. Come and know Him today. Put your faith and trust in Him. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Let's all stand. The illustration, illustrations that Jude gives aptly show us what an apostate is. and had a spot, an apostate among us as the church of the living God. But here today, I want you to, you know, Peter said, make your calling and election sure. Do you know the Lord? Have you been born again? Jude said, I wanted to write and talk to you about the common salvation. It's available to all, even the brother of the Lord Jesus, common salvation. We may be all from different backgrounds, but we come the same way by the cross. Why don't you come and know Jesus Christ today? Why don't you repent and believe the gospel? Don't close the door on God. Don't say no to God. If God's dealing with your heart, don't close the door. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I love you. I gotta pray you'd speak to hearts this morning. God, continue to convict, draw people to Jesus. God, have every one of us look at our heart and be rid of every semblance of an apostate. God, far be it for a born-again child of God to have some contours that match an apostate. Oh God, far be it from us. God, let us analyze our hearts. Let us make things right with you today. Save souls, change lives in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. I'm trusting to the unseen hand. We hope and pray that today's episode of the Unseen Hand podcast has been a help and blessing to you. For more information such as other podcasts, ministry helps, blog posts, previous sermons, or how to contact Brother Brown directly, just go to RonnieBrown.net. Join us next time for another message from Brother Ronnie on the Unseen Hand podcast. Until then, may God's unseen hand gently guide you on your journey home. The Unseen Hand.